You can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be there in a few minutes. When Pastor Andy was looking for people to preach, one of the first things that we had to overcome was what to preach on after I was set for the first two weeks. And if you know a little bit about me or my time in school, that I was focused on spiritual disciplines. And one of the reasons that is, is because of my mom. And she got her one of her degrees in spiritual disciplines. At a time when I was wandering away from the faith, just looking around at what might fuel me and interest me, I looked over at meditation, Buddhist meditation and things like that, that I, I thought would offer more wisdom and insight. And of course, they did not. But one of the wise things that my mom said at that point was, make sure that you're always remembering Jesus. And I start there, one, because it's Mother's Day, and also because we as parents, and especially mothers, never really know what small things they can say to their children that are going to push them and encourage them and bind them closer to Christ. So I tell you that, that this morning we'll be talking about meditation because I was not convinced of all that other meditation and instead concerned only with looking to Jesus. There are more reasons to do meditation, though, and the Bible holds many of them up, two that are going to interest us, especially today, or that I'm going to focus on today, is last time, if you remember, I preached on using the Bible and getting to know the Bible as well as you could because it spoke to what you needed for every good work. Meditation is a way to go through the Bible and to think about the Bible so that you can include it into your everyday life, that it bridges that gap. And then another reason is because next week I'll be preaching on prayer. And again, meditation, as we'll see today, bridges that gap between Scripture and prayer to help us pray well the words of God, even his own words back to him. So you may have heard of meditation and Especially in our culture today, it has many different definitions, and a lot of them have to do with emptying your mind, or focusing on nothing, or making sure that you think only about yourself, or your comfort, or relaxing yourself. Different religions participate in those, and still more repeat the names of false gods over and over again, or mantras that they recite, 
or some have beads that they'll go through and they're determined that if they go through the beads so many times and say the right words that God will do more for them, that they will grow closer to God by this type of meditation. That's far different from Christian meditation. Christian meditation is found in the Bible and described in the Bible as a way to use your mind, not a way to ignore your mind, not a way to turn it off or set it on nothing, but a way to think God's thoughts after him, to ask questions, to try to figure out and reason about what God is doing or what he's teaching and engage our minds in that. So it's it's not just focusing on one thing, but it's letting God have control of our minds and using them as he's created them to be used. The idea in the Hebrew word is mumbling. So whenever you were hear that word meditate or meditating as you did several times in Psalm 77 this afternoon, you can think about mumbling. And that's what the, they would be doing as they were meditating. So when Isaac went out into the field as he's waiting for Rachel and he doesn't maybe even know he's waiting for Rachel, but Rachel comes back at that point. He went out into the field to mumble. Now, that's what the, what the Bible says. And later when Joshua is told by God that he has, he's going to lead God's people and to spend day and night mumbling about God's word. The Psalm 1 says the same thing, says that a godly man is to be one who day and night is mumbling to himself. Now, hopefully, you're already aware that people think we're crazy and that Christians don't know what they're talking about. So mumbling to yourself won't be a big deal for you. It'll just add to that uh idea that people have of us, which is fine. Uh, we need to get God's word into us, and one of the ways to do that is to recite it to ourselves, to mumble about it, to ask questions about it, to think about it, to even repeat those words out loud, to talk to God about his word as we go through our days. So in order to meditate, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. We're going to, as we should always be doing when we're learning about what God means and what God intends us to do, in this case, how God intends us to mumble, is we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And then we're going to go back to the scripture reading that Jake read earlier and use Psalm 77 to give us even more ideas about what it means to meditate and how we can use that meditation to grow closer to God and to mumble about him. So if you would look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. 
First, we need to get a little bit of context here. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and addressing their false teachers. They have had people in there who are saying, there's some stuff in the old covenant that is still really important, and you guys need to keep that because it's very important to your salvation. If you are not keeping it, you may not be saved. And Paul, as he writes often, is saying, no, the old covenant is gone. Christ has fulfilled it. We are in the new covenant, and now you need to follow my gospel, not the old gospel that mixes us up with, or the other gospel that mixes us up with the old covenant. So as Paul is talking about this, he uses an illustration from Exodus 34. So thinking back to Exodus 34, it's the second time that Moses comes down off the mountain with the tablets in his hand. And this time, instead of throwing them, he's already done that. He comes down this time and the people look at him, especially the leaders and Aaron look at him and his face is shining. And it's so bright that they're, they're looking away. And he has to encourage them and call them to come forward to him, to not be afraid. And they do come. And he teaches them and tells them about the commands of God. And then he puts a veil over his face so that they can't see the shining of his face anymore. And Paul uses that to show us how the fading of that that shining face of Moses, that he covered his his face so that people wouldn't see the glory, the, the shining of Moses' face fade away. And just like Moses covered his face because of that fading glory of the old covenant, that old covenant is now faded all the way out, that we have a new covenant. And now we get these verses where we're told more about the permanent removal of that veil of Moses as a picture of what it means to be part of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 say, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In verse 16, Paul is telling that, yes, we are under this new covenant and that it is a lasting covenant that will not fade. And that we look to the Spirit for the change, this change that happens within us. We are the ones who turn to the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit and the veil is removed. This describes Christians. This is not as much a command as it is a description, that this is what Christians do. They look to the Lord. 
They look to the Spirit for that inner change. They don't look to the law. They don't look to their outward circumstances. They don't look to their diet. They don't look to their exercise routine. They look to the Lord for change. They know that only the Lord can change the heart. Paul is telling the Corinthians that these false teachers are trying to get them to look away from the Lord, trying to get them to put their trust somewhere else. But instead, our trust should be placed in the Lord. And that the Lord, who is the Spirit, in verse 17 He is the Spirit of Jesus, and He has the authority to change us into the likeness of Jesus. Paul wants the Corinthians to know the Holy Spirit and to know that there is a freedom that comes from the change that He brings. And then in verse 18, we see that Instead of looking to those things that are fading, the glory that is fading, believers look only to Jesus. And this is how the Spirit works. The Spirit's job and mandate from the Father and the Son is to show Jesus to us. That is what His work is to do. We find this out in John 14 through 16, where Jesus is describing that the Holy Spirit will come and he will teach them how to teach others about Jesus, how we can look to Jesus. And that as we do that, verse 18 tells us, we are being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit makes that change. So in the New Covenant, Christians look to the Spirit for change. The way we look to the Spirit for change is looking to the one whom the Spirit is showing us, Jesus Christ, who Paul refers to in verse 18 as the glory of the Lord, as he does later in chapter 4. And as others do in, like in Hebrews chapter 1. This, this is meditation. Looking to Jesus. And this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time understanding how to do. How do we look to Jesus? if we want to be changed into his likeness, if this is what Christians do, then it must be true that the more that we want to look to Jesus and the more that we look to Jesus, then the more opportunity we have to be changed. Meditation is called a spiritual discipline, and the reason I use that word is because of the way that the two words break down. Spiritual from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is required to make that change. And discipline because we have to be disciplined. We have to be the ones 
that engage in it. Some of you have, maybe even most of you, have heard me give the illustration of a bowling alley where you as a believer are a pin in the bowling alley. And if you'll allow some license, through your own effort, you as a pin are allowed to place yourself wherever you want to be in the bowling alley. Well, God is the one bowling, and he has his bowling ball of grace and change that he is going to throw in that bowling alley. Now, where do you think God is going to throw his bowling ball? Is it going to be down the alley? Is it going to be at the end of the alley where all the pins are normally set up to be knocked over as the game normally goes? That's exactly what God does with his bowling ball. That's where grace normally goes. And that's how God describes to us what things like Bible reading and meditation and prayer and solitude and fellowship with other believers and counseling and mentoring and memorizing the Bible and all and on and on, all these spiritual disciplines, that's the way God describes them. These are the things that I give grace through. This is the, the lane down which I throw my bowling ball of grace and change. So if you choose to place yourself over in the snack bar, then very, very rarely are you going to get any grace. Very rarely or very slowly are you going to be changed. Sure, God might intentionally throw a bowling ball over there just because he loves you, but where you want to be is at the other end of that lane because that is where God's grace is coming. So we take on meditation, that spiritual discipline, because we we use our own discipline to be changed by the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit. The same thing is said in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. There you have working it out, but also you work it out because the Spirit is working in you for his good pleasure. So you have both the same idea. You're working to put yourself in the way of grace, and God is working to send that grace to you, to work in you, to change you from one degree of glory to another. We're going to now briefly go through Psalm 77 and see how Psalm 77 teaches us about meditation. He just gives three areas where we're going to look and see a few lessons about meditation. Obviously, we can't talk about all the many things that the Bible talks about meditation in one sermon, but we are a fellowship of believers and you are encouraged to talk with me or Trevor, Pastor Andy, Joel, each other, all of the above, in order to figure out how to meditate better, how different parts of the scriptures can be used in different ways to draw close to Christ, to look to Jesus. 
Psalm 77 starts out as Jake read and summarized in the first three verses. There is this trial, this difficulty in Asaph's life where he's struggling through it. It seems even perhaps like the Lord is far away from him, like the Lord is removed. The Lord is is out there not speaking to Asaph, not giving Asaph that comfort that he normally has, that peace that he enjoys. And this is such a great trial to his heart that he's searching everywhere. He, he begins this prayer that he has confidence that the Lord answers prayer, but he's not sure when, he's not sure how. He even gets to the point of maybe doubting that the Lord will answer this time. So this psalm teaches us that this is normal, that believers go through periods like this. And that section in 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that we are part of an even greater covenant. We know more now about the way that God has created the world and how he has made salvation. That our real enemies are spiritual and are much more threatening and devious and dangerous than our physical enemies. So we look to this psalm even more to find out how is Asaph delivered from it? In verses 4 through 9, we get the first mention of meditation in this psalm. It happens in verse 6. And you'll see as you read there that he's doing a search of his soul. He's looking inside himself. What is it in him? How, how has his what does his faith say about himself? As he's searching, we find out almost the way that he's searching. He's searching with these questions. And he asks five questions in verses 7 to 9. He asks, the, asks questions that are obvious to us and were probably obvious to him too, Questions along the lines of, has the steadfast love of the Lord stopped being steadfast? Or has he stopped keeping his promises? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or instead of being slow to anger, has his anger overcome his compassion toward his people? Asaph is helping us meditate by teaching us the importance of knowing the character of God, knowing who God is, what he's like. A good place to go would be Exodus 34, 6, that you can just write down now, but that's where Moses is told who the Lord is as the Lord passes by him and has put him in the, the cleft of the rock to protect him. He says, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love 
And he goes on from there, steadfast love and faithfulness. And he goes on from there to describe him and the, himself in the next two verses as well. But there's so much character of who God is there. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and just, just that, the Lord, the Lord, the one who does not change. And he repeats it twice just to make sure that you know that he does not change. No, he does not change. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger. These are important because as we meditate on them, as we memorize that verse and think over them and think, if he does not change, if he is merciful and that does not go away, if he has steadfast love, then we can ask these same questions that Asaph asked, but we can be sure to ask them in faith and say, is the Lord going to change? The one who never changes? Will he change now because of me? Or he is merciful. Will he become less merciful to me? Has his mercy run out after all the things that I've read in the Bible? Is this the end of his mercy? Is steadfast love not so steadfast, but maybe just coming here and there and I've been misreading the Bible. And then we get back again to that point in 2 Corinthians 3, where that was the old covenant, and now we have the new, where the new covenant shows us even more vividly how much God is invested in his steadfast love. That we can ask questions like Romans 8 does. 8.32, I believe, says, if the Father has given us his own Son to die on the cross, how will he withhold anything else from us? If we have such great questions, we can confront ourselves with these, that even in the most difficult, trying times, we can ask, is God gone? Has he left? Or does it say in Hebrews that Jesus is with us now and forever? Or at the end of Matthew, that Jesus is with us and will not depart from us. That is our confidence as we go out and do evangelism. And then Asaph closes Psalm seven or yes, Psalm seventy seven looking at the works of God. So we have the, the depth of Asaph's need in the first part, and then how he finds God there for him by meditating on who God is and what God has done. And what God has done, he first starts in verse 13 with the ways of God being holy. Now, at first, that can seem a little cryptic, a little difficult. But what he's meaning there is we can't understand all of the ways of God. Some of the ways of God are so removed from us that we're not able to make sense of them. Sometimes very difficult things happen because God has put them there because of his wisdom, his providence, his sovereignty, and his greater plan that is greater than your plan, greater than my plan, and we can't understand it. Lord willing, we will understand it someday. 
but his ways are holy. And we can't draw him into judging him, asking him why he is not doing as we'd want him to do, because his ways are holy, beyond finding out. But also, Asaph remembers that the general work of God is for his people, and the specific that he remembers is the exodus. He remembers how God saved his people through the Red Sea, how he parted the waters, and gives us even more detail of the judgment language that's happening in that passage where God is judging the judging Pharaoh and all those that are coming after his people. You remember how boldly they enter into the same passageway that God has made. But once everyone in Israel has crossed over, the waters come back and God destroys, God judges all the enemies of God and delivers his people. So we can meditate on the works of God, the works of God like that, where God brings both salvation and justice. And then again, as 2 Corinthians 3 says in the New Covenant, we have this greater deliverance. Jesus even calls it his exodus when he's up on the mountain of transfiguration, the time where he will deliver his people out of the bondage of sin and death and hell and into his train following behind him in salvation. Now, I'll step back here and give a few suggestions on meditation in general. As we've looked at the scripture, hopefully you've seen that looking to Jesus is what it means to meditate. We've also seen how meditation is a way to prepare for times of trial and times of difficulty. Asaph, surely that wasn't his first time where he asked these questions. It wasn't his first time where he tried to think through what God, who God was and what God had done. It wasn't the first time that he'd meditated on God. So doing these things now, even in times of relative peace, will build us up and build up our faith so that we can engage with more difficult times to come. And we can help others as well engage in those times. Keeping the analogy of the bowling alley in mind, we put ourselves in that lane. As a side note, the bowling alley analogy is not my own, and I owe it to Dr. Whitney at the seminary. Uh, But keeping that in mind, we grow closer to Jesus the more we meditate. We meditate as putting ourselves in that lane, waiting for God to bless our thinking, our reasoning, even our feeling and loving and desiring to make those into the image of Christ, to grow from one degree of glory to another. 
as Asaph also taught us, that, that was a prayer where God is praying, or sorry, Asaph is praying to God, and all that meditating has helped him, even in difficulty, to pray to God how he needs to be changed. So what do you meditate on? The three things that we talked about were meditating on God, his character, meditating on what God has done, and then meditating on our relationship to God, both at the beginning there where he feels so distant from God and at the end how he remembers the salvation of God, bringing him back together with with God, reminding him of the salvation that God has promised. And we know all the more the salvation of Jesus Christ and the greater promises that he will return and he will take us away to a new heavens, a new earth, where we will live with him forever. If these are what we meditate on, then practically, how do we meditate? Philippians 4.8 lists many good things, good justice, beauty, and then tells us, or whatever else, look at these things. And that's what meditation is, identifying what is good and just and true and beautiful in this world, but especially in the Bible, and saying, why has God made it like this? How does this reflect who he is? How has God shown us this in his word? What has he done? And how has it changed my relationship with him? We can also meditate, again, in summary, by using the big idea of the sermon each week. I pray that you come anticipating that God will give you something that throughout the week you can meditate on. And one of those things is every week we try to get up here and give you one place that you can go and meditate. One thought that you can bring through your week and turn over in your mind and apply to your different situations in life and think through how God is working what God has done and what it means to you. How does it help you look at Jesus Christ? You can take one of the songs from the bulletin, read it over during work or for your morning devotional. Often we have very great hymns that point us directly to Christ, and we can use those to keep pointing us throughout the week to him. You can mumble them to yourself as you work, as you wash dishes, as you clean the house or drive your car. Read more and more of your Bible. As we talked about last time, the Bible is so important, and sometimes we don't have a lot of time to do Bible memory, or we can't remember 
the big idea from the sermon, or we forgot to grab a hymn from the sermon or from the bulletin. We can read more and more. The more that we're familiar with the Bible, the more ways that it will come up, the more connections that the Bible with, will make with itself, the more the Holy Spirit will lead you into teaching you how to look at Jesus. Hoping not to offend any, I suggest that you might do your devotionals in the morning by starting your day in the Word, praying that God will give you something to meditate on that you can think about for the rest of the day. Or perhaps you can add a little more time to your devotional time in the morning and begin to write out what you're meditating on. After you prayed and found that peace that you want to, to meditate on the rest, for the rest of the day, write it out. Just a sentence or two that say, this is what I'm going to go back to. It will help you get it into your mind, help you begin that process of using your mind to look to Christ, to draw close to him. And then, of course, you can memorize parts of the Bible or use the parts you already have to meditate. Psalm 23 is a great place to look. Most of us, I would venture to say, have memorized Psalm 23. And if you haven't, that's fine. It's a great place to start. All of the Psalms lend themselves very well to memorizing because of how vivid and picture-like they are. In Psalm 23, just to do a little bit as an example, you might approach it to meditate on it and say, the Lord is my shepherd. What does it mean for the Lord? Why does it have the Lord? Is it because there's only one Lord? Sounds right. There's, there's one Lord, and he is my shepherd. Now, is my shepherd is because even right now, no matter the circumstance in my life, this is always true. The Lord is my shepherd, and that will always be true. There will never be a time where that fades away. This could even be one of our questions like Asaph. Is today such a horrible day that the Lord is not my shepherd? Well, that's absurd because I know Psalm 23 says the Lord is my shepherd. And then think through where else is language like that used? Where else is the Lord described as my shepherd? You might think of places like Jesus talking about in John 10, how he is the good shepherd. And you might make that connection and think, wow, Jesus is my shepherd then. If Jesus is my shepherd, then what does that mean? How has he provided for me like a shepherd? How has he given me? What does a shepherd even do? And how has Jesus done that for me? He's given me of his body and blood. He's supplied all I need to eat and to drink that I might participate in his new covenant. And you can go on and on with thoughts and questions, reasoning, drawing out that whole psalm. And at the end, you won't have exhausted it. One of the amazing things about God's word is 
you'll go back and the next time you want to meditate on Psalm 23, you can do it just as fruitfully the next time as you did the first time. You don't need to memorize a new psalm every day. You can go back and rehearse what what was that one about again. How, as you read more and more of your Bible, you'll start to see that you've meditated on Psalm 23 and the Lord being your shepherd. And now all of a sudden the shepherd starts showing up in Isaiah. And you start reading about this servant and this shepherd and the sheep and the Bible expands to you more and more, and you get to see Christ appearing in different places throughout the Bible, and you get to nourish yourself. And again, the Holy Spirit uses that to conform you to the likeness of Christ, that you might grow from one degree of glory to the next. So in closing, Christian meditation is about thinking, questioning, reasoning, feeling, enjoying, using your mind to think God's thoughts after him. It's not about emptying your mind. It's not about reciting phrases or getting through a ring of beads. Meditation is a spiritual discipline. It has two parts to it that you must be disciplined and also that the Holy Spirit guarantees that as you discipline yourself, he will use your looking at Christ to change you into his likeness. Psalm 77 showed us how to meditate on who God is, what he has done, and his saving work. And as 2 Corinthians 3 taught us, the new covenant is greater than the old and there are many greater ways that we can look to the Lord because of his son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. And then as we look back at Psalm 77, it showed us that in every aspect of the old covenant, the new covenant is more glorious. So our meditation can explore how the new covenant is greater in glory. So now as you leave this afternoon, try to think about one thing. Perhaps it is the big idea to this sermon, which is look to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will not only be saved, but continue to be changed. And the more you look, the more change you'll see. Or perhaps it'll be looking into your reading. Or perhaps it'll be in a conversation just outside these doors. Or perhaps it will be looking to your mother as someone who taught you what it is to look at Christ. Pray that one of these will be your meditation, and that come next week, you'll be full of anticipation to see what the Lord is waiting to give you so that you can meditate on him even more and more. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
We love you and we love your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for sending your Holy Spirit who continually shows us how to look to Christ and continues to bear with us, to change us, to make us into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Father, now we pray that you would help us encourage each other and encourage ourselves in these things that we might grow close to you. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.